Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Tanya J.W. McDonald, who's based at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the US about the use of low-carb diets for patients with epilepsy, Alzheimer's, malignant glioma, and other neurological conditions. Remarkably, low-carb diets have been used successfully to treat patients with epilepsy for over 100 years but fell out of favour when drugs were developed. However, in recent years, there's been a resurgence in the use of these diets and studies suggest that around 40-50% to of patients whose epilepsy is resistant to drug therapy can be helped with a low-carb diet. And in malignant glioma, a form of brain cancer, some research now suggests that tumour cells prefer glucose, so following a low-carb diet cuts sugar, removing this potential fuel source. So is it possible that food can access neurological pathways that drugs can't and treat the cause as well as the symptoms? And what implications does this have for the treatment of other neurological diseases? But before we get to Tanya's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com. Go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou, or via my website, which, as I mentioned, is whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks. And now back to the interview. Dr. Tanya J.W. McDonald is a neurologist based at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the US. She focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of epilepsy and seizures. Her particular interests include dietary therapies for adults with epilepsy, evaluations for seizure surgery, and epilepsy in women. Her research examines the impact of ketogenic diets on epilepsy and other neurological conditions. Here's Tanya's interview. Tanya, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Tanya, I think a good place to start is where research or how researchers first discovered that low-carb diets or ketogenic diets could help those with epilepsy. Sure. So, The first use of a ketogenic diet or the treatment of epilepsy actually began over 100 years ago. So in 1921, Drs. Wilder and Winter at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester hypothesized that some of the reports that they were hearing about patients having improved seizure control during fasting might actually be because of a buildup of ketones in the blood. And so because fasting for a prolonged period of time wasn't a sustainable treatment for epilepsy, they then developed a classic ketogenic diet, which tried to replicate the ketonemia, but still provide adequate nutrition. And so that was actually the first use of a low-carb or a ketogenic diet for the treatment of epilepsy. Since then, there's been expansion of use of the ketogenic diet, certainly a resurgence in the late 1990s, early 2000s in the use for both the treatment of pediatric patients and adult patients with epilepsy. And what is it about inducing ketones that helps the brain? 
there's a lot of work that's looked at trying to understand what's the mechanism of action. How do such diets actually improve seizure control? And we kind of figured out that it's actually not just one specific mechanism, that there might actually be a few different ones that are all contributing. One of the main ones, we see that when you have high levels of ketones, you can actually alter neurotransmitter balance, basically the the chemicals that allow the neurons in the brain to communicate. And there are positive or excitatory neurotransmitters, and there's inhibitory or uh, negative transmitters. And we find that in high ketone states, you actually have an increase in those negative inhibitory neurotransmitters, and that helps to dampen excess excitability. And that's basically what a seizure is, when firing and communication between neurons goes awry and you have too much of it. And so we think that that's one mechanism by which ketogenic diets can help to suppress seizures. There's not just sort of one approach. In a recent paper you wrote, there was a variety of diets. They were all low carb, but some were lower carb than others. How do you decide which of those is appropriate? So we kind of think about ketogenic diet therapies as an umbrella term. And underneath that umbrella, there are a few different diet types that are all aiming for ketonemia, so an increase in ketones. There's the classic ketogenic diet, which is basically based on calculating ratios. So patients have to weigh foods and figure out or aim for what's uh, traditionally a four to one ratio of fat, grams of fat, to grams of carbs and protein combined. Some patients can also get away with a less restrictive ratio, so sometimes three to one or two to one, but it does require a lot of weighing foods, calculating ratios, which can be challenging for some patients to follow. So another ketogenic diet type is the modified Atkins diet. So instead of having to weigh foods and calculate ratios, for this diet, you actually just have to read food labels and restrict your total carbohydrate intake to less than typically 20 grams of net carbs per day. And we found that that's actually easier for a lot of adult patients to follow and adolescents as well, because you don't have to worry about weighing foods and food preparation. You can just use some of the ready-made food labels. And for foods like vegetables, fruits that don't come with food labels, there's a number of websites, resources, et cetera, that can help you to figure out, well, what is the carb content? And there are a few other varieties of ketogenic diets. There's the MCT oil version, which basically utilizes form of fat or medium chain triglycerides that the body is very good at metabolizing to produce ketones. And so it can be a little bit more permissive in carbohydrate intake. And so what we usually say in trying to choose, well, which of these diet types is good to start with, is trying to pick the one that the patient's likely to have the most success and adherence with. And then we can always make adjustments as needed to help them to get into ketosis. We do find that getting into ketosis might be a little bit easier with the classic ketogenic diet compared to some of the other forms, but every patient is independent. And so we work with them to sort of help them to achieve success. So how successful is the ketogenic diet in reducing seizures? One of the classic benchmarks that we use to determine efficacy for not only the diet, but also seizure medications is thinking about what we call their responder rate. And so for a lot of studies, it's basically assessing how many patients achieve greater than a 50% reduction in their seizures. And the higher the proportion of patients that achieve that, the more successful the treatment. And we found including randomized controlled trials in the pediatric population, that that benchmark was often 50% on average in most of those studies. 
We found in some of the studies in the adult population that it's probably a little shy of that in adults, probably closer to like 40% or so on average, cumulatively, when you average all of the studies. That's what we tend to see, that 50 to 40% of patients will see greater than or equal to a 50% reduction in seizures. And is that people who've tried a drug approach and failed or people who've decided to go down the ketogenic diet to begin with? So most of the studies only included individuals that had previously tried a number of seizure medications and failed them. So the majority of the trials are of patients that have what we call drug-resistant epilepsies. So there's no statistics that tell us for people for the very first time trying to treat their epilepsy that would compare a ketogenic diet with medication. So there aren't any large, robust studies looking at that as ketogenic diet use as initial treatment. There are a few specific forms of epilepsy uh, where the diet is recommended as first-line therapy. As an example, um, GLUT1 deficiency syndrome, which is a genetic disorder that impairs the ability for glucose to actually get into the brain. And so ketogenic diets are useful because this is a different type of fuel source that can readily get into the brain and provide fuel for important processes of, of the brain. And then there are a few other similar types of disorders where the ketogenic diet is used as first line. But for most other patients with epilepsy, it's considered more of an adjunctive therapy, meaning they've already started or tried to use seizure medications. And if they're not seeing the response that you'd like, or having a lot of intolerable side effects to seizure medications, and so you're not able to push those medications as high as you'd like, that's when we start to think about the ketogenic diet. Because so I just wondered if some patients might think about it, because as we know, every medication we take is a benefit and a risk. That's correct. And obviously, a ketogenic diet gives certain lifestyle inconveniences, but presumably doesn't come with any of the side effects that you would have when you take a medication for epilepsy. Well, it is true that it might not have some of the same side effects that you would see when you take a medication for epilepsy, but it too is a medical therapy and can have side effects. And so we generally do recommend that just like we wouldn't suggest you start a seizure medication without the care and advice of a medical professional, we also recommend the same thing for when you're thinking about starting a ketogenic diet. What could be the side effects of a ketogenic diet for someone with epilepsy? One of the key side effects we see for some patients, it might be an intended side effect and other patients it might not be intended can be weight loss, something that we follow and, and try and make sure that we understand what a patient's goals might be if weight loss is a shared goal or if it's something we want to uh, maintain. Oftentimes when patients first start a ketogenic diet, when your body holds and stores a lot of uh, sugars or glycogen, when you lose a lot of that, you burn a lot of water. And so dehydration can also be something that we see, which can manifest it as constipation, lightheadedness, and other types of symptoms. In addition, there are a number of potential side effects, not every patient experiences them, that we also monitor for. So for example, kidney stone development, particularly for patients who are on medications that can also dehydrate you, like sinicimide or topiramate, for control of their seizures. Some patients can also see alterations or elevations in their lipid markers or cholesterol markers. And there's some literature that because foods that are high in carbs sometimes also tend to be high in other micronutrients. And so sometimes when patients are on a ketogenic diet, they might not be getting adequate amounts of other micronutrients. And so we typically recommend that someone also takes at least traditional multivitamin, calcium and vitamin D supplement, because there's some literature that there might be changes in bone metabolism for patients on a ketogenic diet as well. 
but they wouldn't have neurological side effects from the diet. So yes, you are correct. There are some sort of first-generation anti-seizure medications that are known to cause sometimes some changes in the brain. Classic offender being like phenytoin or dilantin, which can cause some cerebellar changes. And yes, we have not seen those types of lasting or irreversible types of effects with a ketogenic diet. Now, your published work is suggested that it's not just epilepsy that can be helped by these diets, and not just illnesses where there's obvious carbohydrate intolerance, such as diabetes type 2, but diseases such as Alzheimer's, adult malignant glycoma. Why is it that a number of neurological conditions seem to be adversely affected by a high level of carbs? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think part of it is probably evolution. Another part of it is that uh, we think that there are probably some shared mechanisms behind neurologic disorders and that the diet is probably targeting some of those shared mechanisms in, in some of these disorders. So for example, I talked a little bit earlier about the diet effect on potentially neurotransmitter balance. That's pretty important for seizure control, but maybe not as essential for some of these other disorders. But we do think that one of the other potential benefits of a ketogenic diet could also be suppressing inflammation in the brain, which can also have a, an impact on a number of other neurological conditions, specifically things like multiple sclerosis, as an example. In addition, we think the ketogenic diet might be helpful for tumor control, like for glioblastoma multiforma, because there's some literature suggesting that tumor cells preferentially seek glucose over other fuel sources. Whereas your body cells, yes, they preferentially seek glucose, but they also can do just as well with ketones as a fuel source. And so if you're switching to a ketogenic diet, that's somewhat um, potentially starving the tumor cell, keeping you and your normal cells enriched, but starving the tumor cell. And so it could be a useful adjunctive therapy in conjunction with other traditional tumor treatments. So some of that work is, is very early. They're still doing a lot of initial trials, trying to make sure that it's feasible to do ketogenic diets um, in patients that are also receiving other types of therapies for their tumors and trying to assess what are the best markers for looking for tumor improvement. Is it tumor growth? Factors related to that. And then as you mentioned, for Alzheimer's disease, there is some suggestion in the pathophysiology for Alzheimer's that it is related to sort of excess carbs or a carb or glucose intolerance over time. I mean, some people have talked about Alzheimer's as diabetes type 3. Yes, exactly. Exactly, right? And so the thought there is that, again, by reducing carb content and replacing it with another fuel source, your ketones, you're also helping neuronal cells from that mechanism as well. And we think that this is actually pretty important for epilepsy too, mainly because we actually have some literature that suggests that it's not just ketones that is important for the beneficial effect of the diet, which is why some efforts to try and replicate the diet by just packaging it as a pill in a ketone ester or salt that you can take haven't been as effective in controlling seizures long-term. So we do think that the carbohydrate restriction is also playing an important role. So does that mean that there might be benefits, even if people don't go fully low carb, in perhaps cutting out sugar or generally having a moderate rather than a high carb diet? I do think there is some evidence to that. And if you sort of look at some of the other diets, you know, not ketogenic diet that have been purported as healthy, you know, for blood pressure, cardiovascular health, et cetera, you tend to see that while they may not be as low in carbs as the ketogenic diet, 
they definitely have more refined carbs. Um, so whole foods and things like that. And so cutting out a lot of processed carbs and things like that. And so I, I do think while probably not a good idea to try and restrict carbs to the level of a ketogenic diet without medical supervision, certainly thinking about reducing the overall proportion of carbs in your diet would make sense. It's basically not going to do any of us any harm cutting out sugar and reducing our refined carbs. Exactly. I think there's been some literature using more population-based studies that have tried to sort of get at, you know, what is the best, I guess, carb ratio for, for health and markers similar to that. And there's some suggestion, at least from those types of studies, that restricting carbs too low isn't ideal. But I tend to think that sometimes those studies are just taking a snapshot in time of someone's diet. And so they're not actually following someone long term, like we do for a lot of our seizure studies, et cetera. And so it's harder to really digest what does that mean from just like a food frequency questionnaire that's done once. Has your research affected what you eat? So it has in, in some ways. I don't follow a ketogenic diet right now. I don't have a neurologic condition that would make that warranted, but it does make me think more about the types of carbs that I eat. And I probably am not at the traditional like 55%, 60% carb content that most Western American diets at least follow. So if somebody is epileptic and they follow one of these diets for a period of time and they manage to stabilize their condition is it ever possible for them to go back to a more normal diet or would they have to stay on one of those diets for life? So great question. So uh, there's a little bit of a dichotomy on how we approach whether or not to continue the diet or potentially stop and taper off a diet between the pediatric and the adult population. Traditionally, in the pediatric world, once someone has been seizure-free on diet therapy for about two years, they're offered the opportunity to taper off the diet and try and resume a more traditional diet. In the adult world, while we would still potentially offer patients that same option if they've been seizure-free for two years on the diet, there tends to be, I guess, less excitement um, at that opportunity to taper off the diet. Um, many patients have adapted their lifestyle around the dietary change and continue to follow the diet long term. However, they may not restrict carbs to the same level as when they initially started. We do have a lot of patients that instead of still adhering to potentially the 20 grams per day net carb limit, that might be more in the 30 to 40 range and what works for them, presuming that they still remain seizure-free at that ratio. And Tanya, presumably that's telling us something about the brain's ability to adapt, the placidity of the brain. Yes. So we think that in some forms of pediatric epilepsy, not all, patients do grow out of their epilepsy. And so it's true that they can potentially stop anti-seizure medications and continue to do well. There's less adaptability and plasticity in the adult population, but there are some cases where patients are able to stop their anti-seizure therapies, including potentially diet therapy, and do well. So if ketogenic diets can help treat epilepsy, which has proved to be resistant to drugs in some patients, does that mean that food can access certain pathways that drugs can't? So we find that, at least historically, a lot of the discovery of anti-seizure medications was almost serendipitous, right? And not necessarily intentional by design. And so while we know that there are some classic pathways that drug targets are looking for, often neurotransmitters, looking about balancing 
excitatory and inhibitory transmission. There's certainly a whole realm of other targets that diet could potentially influence that are harder to access through traditional anti-seizure medications. There's a lot of work currently in the medication world looking to see if we can actually develop treatments that are more specific to epilepsy, the disease itself, rather than the seizures. But work is early in that stage. And, and we think that the ketogenic diet might have more of an effect on the epilepsy and not just on seizures themselves. One of the suggestions I've seen is the impact that a ketogenic diet might have on the mitochondria of the cell, which are basically the sort of batteries that produce energy in the cell. And quite often in a number of neurological diseases, you see damage to the mitochondria, which it seems ketones are able to at least partly repair. Yes, that is true. That's a great example of how the diet could be helping the disease process itself and not just potentially treating a symptom of the disease, which a lot of our anti-seizure medications are good at treating the symptom, but not necessarily the disease. Another example of how ketogenic diets can be potentially helping target the disease process is through influences on signal transduction mechanisms. So basically how a chemical or a product could basically influence targets that aren't really just at the receptor level, potentially through one of the mTOR pathway signal transduction mechanisms, you can actually impact one particular neurologic condition, tuberous sclerosis, which manifests not only as seizures, but a number of other concerns. And so the ketogenic diet might be particularly beneficial in that particular patient population. And presumably also for some people whose neurons can no longer burn glucose efficiently, being able to run on fat gives them that option. That is correct. Yes. Now, you touched on something briefly at the start, which I wouldn't mind just going into in a little bit more detail, which are the medium chain triglyceride oils. And it seems that even without a particular diet, that in some cases, these seem to show benefit. Why is that the case? Yeah. So when you think about bat types, most of the ones that are found naturally are oftentimes long chain triglycerides and medium chain triglycerides, which are more commonly found in things like coconut oil and things like that. It's easier for the body to metabolize into ketones than it is it's quicker, faster. It's easier for do it than your long chain triglycerides. And so we think that because you're able to boost ketones faster and sort of maintain a higher level when you're taking an MCT type of supplement, that's helping your body see all of the benefits of a ketogenic diet. So that's why in many of our patients, if let's say they start the traditional modified Atkins diet or the traditional classic ketogenic diet and aren't seeing their ketone levels in the goal ranges, we would often think about supplementing with the MCT. Because it is very easy for the body to sort of metabolize it, to produce ketones, there's sometimes some off-target effects, gastrointestinal-related effects, uh, side effects like nausea, queasiness, diarrhea, et cetera. And so we don't usually start with MCT. It's something we kind of incorporate in as needed and based on tolerance of the patient. And I think in one of your papers, you were talking about a group of researchers who are using MCT oil as a standalone treatment. That's correct in the mild cognitive impairment or sort of Alzheimer's disease sort of literature, looking at cognitive effects there. In many cases, they were looking at sort of these additional supplements to see what the benefit could be 
in certain markers of testing related to cognitive improvements for Alzheimer's disease. And they did find that that type of a supplement had an incremental benefit compared to sort of traditional diet. And so, again, thinking about ways of boosting these pathways, even outside of a radical shift in diet therapy. And there are a number of different types of MCT oil. Can you explain what the different ones are? Right. So it really depends on the carbon content, I guess, uh, if what you think about in the median chain triglycerides. Uh, And so we tend to usually suggest that people are, are looking for more C8 forms of MCT oil, but it really depends on their individual effect. And so we don't necessarily say that there's only one type that you can use. It really depends on what impact it's had on you and in, in boosting your ketones and how well you tolerate it. And why do you think C8 might be beneficial Well, compared to some of the others? It's really just based on some of the biochemical literature about how well ketones can be produced following use of those types. And what sort of amounts, if you're having a ketogenic diet, that's a huge change. Yes. So taking a spoonful of an oil seems quite a small change to your diet in comparison. Yes, yes. We tend to use, I guess, for most patients, thinking about tablespoons, sort of adding in different parts of the day. In the sort of classic literature, when you were trying to do the MCT type of ketogenic diet, you were trying to aim for anywhere from 30% to as high as 60% of your caloric intake to come from MCT. When we use it more as a supplement, we're not really targeting that large of a fraction. And it's really just trying to see, well, what amount of MCT allows you to boost your ketones when you check your ketone level. And so we do tend to actually go by tablespoons. So we add in one tablespoon a day, we check to see what impact that has, and we can go up incrementally. And on the sort of mild cognitive problems, it seems to be around about a tablespoon people have been using. They don't seem to have gone very high. Yes. And again, I think it's more of a question, again, of that tolerability. We've found that when the higher you go, the more likely you are to have gastrointestinal side effects, right? And so with most of our therapies, the goal is, of course, the target. Is it seizure control? Is it cognitive benefit, et cetera? But we don't want to limit that by an intolerable side effect. And there also seems to be different points of view in the literature about whether people should take MCT oil with food, without food, and what sort of time of day they should take it. What's your perspective? Yeah, so we try not to pigeon people as much as we can and to see what kind of works and fits into their lifestyle. We find that at least for seizure control, sometimes there are patients that tend to have seizures at certain times of day. And so we try and target the main benefit of the fat boost for those times of day. And so that's sort of how we try to approach it for our patients with epilepsy. But you're correct. There's a wide variety of potential uses of MCT, and we try to individualize that to the patient. And so would that usually be taking it with food or without? So most of our patients do take it with food, mainly because then they're sort of adding it in at the type of their meal. So oftentimes some people might add it to a beverage per se. And so we tend to usually do it with food in that circumstance. Certainly from an Alzheimer's point of view, it seems a relatively low risk approach, you know, that till the evidence is in, there might not be a huge amount of harm in trying it. That is correct. Yes. Outside of the gastrointestinal side effects, which we talked about, there is flexibility in how patients want to approach taking it. So with diet therapy, adherence is a key challenge. And so we're always trying to work with the patient to see what makes the most sense and will fit best to their dietary approach. 
And perhaps we should mention for Alzheimer's, there seems to be one group for whom MCT oil isn't helpful, and that's if someone has an APOE4 gene. That is correct. There's still some work into trying to understand why that might be. Certainly, the APOE4 gene has a large role in the development of Alzheimer's disease, particularly those who develop it later in life, not necessarily the early onset Alzheimer's disease, and trying to understand why that might be and how that might take into a role of an altered lipid metabolism, potentially. That's the, the thought process behind why it might not be as beneficial in that population, but that work is still early. And so they're, they're still trying to understand that. I thought that in some cases, it's not just that it might not be so effective, but it might actually be detrimental for some people. So it's it's possible. So a lot of the literature on that is small in sample size. And so I tend to not want to draw too many conclusions until we've sort of replicated it sure. um, in a few other studies. We've talked about a few of the neurological diseases, but there have been small-scale case reports too of low-carb treatment being used for things like Huntington's, which is a degenerative muscular cognitive disease, which leads to death, horrible disease, and things like Parkinson's. So it seems that the scope for these ketogenic diets is widening, really. Yes, I would agree with that statement. I think, again, it sort of harkens back to the idea that a ketogenic diet can have multiple potential targets of action. And because there's some shared commonality in the types of pathways by which you can develop neurodegeneration, certainly it can be different neuron structures that are principally affected in, let's say, Parkinson's disease versus other disorders. But the idea about the biochemical pathways being similar lends itself to a potential target for a number of different neurologic disorders. And so I think that's why more and more people within the neurological field are looking to see if there's a way that a diet might be helpful in their disease process or disease states. A number of these neurological diseases, modern medicine has been able to control the symptoms. Yes. But hasn't really proved very effective at treating the cause. Yes. And I think that is true of a number of neurologic disorders that we are, even procedures, we're very good at finding ways to improve the symptom of the disease. But in thinking about ways to try and target the disease process itself, it would likely take a um, therapy that is multifactorial in its targets and not just working through one mechanism of action. Is that why drug regimes haven't been perhaps as effective as many people would have hoped in a number of neurological diseases? I think it probably is because while we know a lot more about neurologic disease today than we did, let's say, you know, a half century ago, there's still so much we don't know. We're working at trying to understand more of the pathophysiology behind a disorder um, and potentially think about not just treating one part of that pathway, but sort of a multi-pronged approach to thwart many of the potential mechanisms. And that's why things like the ketogenic diet are so attractive because there's been a large body of work and literature to show that these diets can have such multifactorial effects. Is it true to say that they fell out of fashion when the epilepsy drugs came in and now they've swung back into fashion? Does that mean if we had kept with the ketogenic diet for longer, we might be further along in our progress today? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and I think it is fair to say that the overall use in the neurologic community of such diets did die down. And for convenience, in many cases, it's easier to take a pill than it is to change your diet. Fewer patients used such diets. And then certainly over time, as we talked about, 
for patients who don't respond well to seizure medications, those with drug-resistant epilepsy, even when I guess it wasn't as in favor, there were still some patients that were using diets all along um, to target some harder forms of epilepsy. But certainly with the resurgence around, you know, 2000, the turn of the century, yes, diet types are more in favor. There's more knowledge about it as an option for epilepsy. Um, and so certainly more patients can potentially benefit. Certainly, it's always, I guess, thought-provoking to think about, you know, if we were working with diets all along, would that mean that we'd have as much literature looking into the mechanism of diets and how it might influence not only seizures, but other disease states way back when, 50 years ago? It's certainly possible. Do you think there's a possibility that as the knowledge base builds of ketogenic diets for epilepsy, there might also be more patients for whom it becomes the first thing they want to try rather than medication at all? Yeah, there are a few trials underway looking at should we be using ketogenic diets earlier in some disease states and how does it potentially compare to the use of a first anti-seizure medication? Because that's sort of what's lacking right now in the literature, that there isn't robust evidence to say, well, how does a diet compare to an anti-seizure medication at first use? Certainly, if there does seem that there's either equal efficaciousness of a ketogenic diet and a first anti-seizure medication or potentially improved efficaciousness or efficacy of a diet over an anti-seizure medication in certain conditions, and certainly more patients and more providers would consider it as their initial option when thinking about treatment for epilepsy. But until we sort of have that evidence, it's, it's hard to know which way people will go. I know that as a physician, someone that takes care of patients with epilepsy, my goal is to try and get them to adhere to the treatment that I'm recommending. And at least right now, it's easier for a lot of patients to take a pill than a diet, but there's quite a few patients that would be interested in diet first if that was where the literature sort of supported. I appreciate the second generation drugs have fewer side effects, but do they still have some neurological side effects? There's not as much literature suggesting that there are long-term neurologic side effects with some of the newer generation anti-seizure medications. Certainly, any medication that works on the brain could potentially cause some overall dampening of electrical excitability because that's the target of action for helping to reduce seizure control. But whether or not there's any long-term impact of having that kind of exposure for 20 to 30 years for some of the newer medications isn't as clear. Epilepsy can have a variety of different causes. Does that affect how well either drugs or diet work in treating them? So we tend to bin epilepsy into sort of two cohorts, patients that have seizures that start in one spot or potentially more than one spot, sort of a focal epilepsy bin, and patients that have seizures that start all over the brain at once, more of a generalized epilepsy bin. And there has been some work trying to see if diets are equally efficacious in both of these types of epilepsy. And it seems that there's a little bit of a suggestion that actually diet therapies might be more beneficial in patients with your generalized epilepsies, the epilepsies that start all over the brain at once, rather than the vocal epilepsies. But we do still have quite a few patients with focal epilepsy that also respond well to diet therapy. So I wouldn't say that 
the diet does not have an effect in a certain epilepsy type. We do know from the anti-seizure medication literature that there are some seizure medications that are very good for focal epilepsy, some anti-seizure medications that are very good for generalized epilepsies, and a few that are actually pretty good for both. Now, one type of epilepsy, which is surprisingly common, a lot of people don't know about, is late onset epilepsy, which again can have a variety of causes. How effective is both medication and diet in treating that? So in terms of late onset epilepsy in the elderly, we tend to see that epilepsy is most prevalent at sort of two peaks. Um, there's an early peak in young childhood and then another uh, big peak in the elderly population. So like over 60, let's say. And we find that there can be a wide variety of causes for the development of epilepsy in that population. It is often related to vascular causes like strokes, things like that. Certainly other things may play a role. We don't have any specific studies of diet in this particular age group to figure out if that's more beneficial, less beneficial than at any other ages in the population. And there's only a handful of studies really looking at anti-seizure medications in this potential cohort of patients. I think the work is still early yet to tell us whether or not there's a particular treatment that is most beneficial in late onset epilepsy. So late onset epilepsy is likely to be something like vascular damage, which then triggers that. Right. So yeah, so there's a, a lot of work right now sort of trying to understand if it's not just the epilepsy, that it's actually more of a manifestation of a bigger disorder and that there may be a, a correlation or relationship between a late onset epilepsy and cognitive impairment, sort of your Alzheimer's disease types of disorders. So those sorts of cases, epilepsy might have caused memory loss. Obviously, Alzheimer's also causes memory loss. So how do people work out what is the cognitive loss from the vascular damage and what is the potential cognitive loss from what might be developing epilepsy? Right. And I think it's challenging to tease out. I 100% I agree. Even in our current epilepsy patients that are not late onset and that don't have even the question of Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, memory complaints are a common comorbidity for patients with epilepsy. In some cases, we do think that it is related to the seizure control itself, particularly if we know that their seizure network involves portions of the brain that are key to memory processes like the temporal lobe, et cetera. There's also the potential role that anti-seizure medications can play in sort of uh, reducing quickness of attention and ability to sort of multitask and, and things like that, which can also impact a person's subjective feeling about are they able to remember things as well if they're not able to do as much as they were able to do previously. So if they're elderly and they've suffered some sort of cognitive loss, and then if the medication then adds to that loss, is that a tougher balancing act about whether it's worth taking the medication or not? So it can be challenging to tease that out. And so a lot of times when um, patients come in and report memory complaints, we believe that their seizures are under well control. Because certainly if you're having uncontrolled seizures, that can contribute to the, the memory loss. Then sometimes we might change their treatment strategy to see if there is a, a difference in their memory complaints that we can then attribute to one medication or the other. But it, it's certainly not a definitive answer to whether or not the medications could be contributing to uh, memory complaints, particularly in the elderly population who are more susceptible to negative impacts of, of medications just generally. And I think when people think about epilepsy, they think of the classic grand mal attack where somebody's clearly having a fit. 
But actually, that's not the case, is it? Because many epileptic attacks are not like that. That is correct. So when we think about a seizure, many people do sort of picture what um, we call a, a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure to basically suggest someone that has lost consciousness and has stiffening and shaking of their whole body. From a electrical standpoint, what that tells us is that all of the brain or a large portion of the brain has become involved in the electrical activity, but that does not necessarily tell us where that electrical activity started. And so for a wide variety of patients, which have a lot of different forms of focal epilepsies, that electrical activity can be confined to just one portion of the brain and just present symptoms related to that area. So some patients with seizures might only have visual phenomena where they are only seeing something strange. Some patients with seizures may just abruptly lose the ability to communicate. They can no longer speak to people in, in conversation. Some patients with seizures might just have a motor manifestation of one limb, shaking of an arm, because that's the area of the brain that is involved in that electrical activity process. But if that electrical activity spreads both sides of the brain, then it's going to manifest as a grand mal or a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure where someone loses consciousness and has stiffening and shaking of the body. Do you think that modern medicine has undervalued the impact that food has on our health? We obviously all know it's a good idea to eat a balanced diet, but that actually it's rather more than that. I think the more we learn, I think that it is it's true that we are what we eat, right? And I think that it is clear that diet is not something you should ignore in the treatment of medical conditions, that even if it's something that you may not have thought, we're learning today that actually, yes, your diet is playing a role. So do you think nutrition should be a bigger part of the curriculum at medical school? I think as we learn more and medical knowledge advances, that does have some bearing and impact on what is formally taught in medical school. As an outside example of genetics, right, and, and precision medicine, when I was going through medical training, it was probably not nowhere near as big as the time and attention that is devoted in today's medical students, because we know it has such a massive impact on a number of medical conditions, not only in the disease process, but also in therapies and treatments. And so I think that there's likely to be a similar sort of shift and approach to the training in nutrition. So finally, over the next decade or so, what do you think are going to be the key developments in ketogenic diets and neurological disease? There's more of a effort now to sort of understand not only the mechanisms by which ketogenic diets can be beneficial for a wide variety of neurologic conditions, but also trying to understand optimal timing uh, of diet use in a number of these conditions. Is there a vulnerable period for a number of these neurologic conditions where diet is most efficacious? and that the use of such a diet could potentially alter the trajectory of the disease. I think that's a very hot area in the, the literature today or in the community today to try to understand how can we maximize the benefit of such therapies. Well, Tony, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Really interesting. Yes, thank you so much. I, it was a pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.